this is Steve. This podcast is all about making the gospel relevant to your life. That means discovering the good news of Jesus no matter what you're going through today. Recently, I was able to have an encounter of a lifetime as I walked in the footsteps of Jesus in the Holy Land. And today, I'm just going to describe a little of my encounter with you, and maybe you'll encounter him as well. Well, I hope you're following along with your notes today on your note sheet or on the Bible app because the first blank on your page is this, Jesus says weird stuff. Jesus says weird stuff. Yeah, that's the blank on the page. You know it and I know it. He says weird stuff, stuff that we tend to kind of take for granted today when we read the words of Jesus. But if you think about him, he says weird stuff. Like he recommends personal mutilation poke out your eye, cut off your hand, right? That's just weird. Why would Jesus say something like that? At one point, Jesus calls a woman a dog. Yeah, look look it up. It's in Matthew 15. You can look it up. He calls her a dog when she just wants her kid to be healed. It's weird. Why would he say that to her? At one point, when Jesus' following is bigger than ever, he's more popular than he's ever been, he's got more people uh, coming along with him than ever before, he says, hey, you can't really follow me unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood. And most of them go, I'm out, and they leave. He runs them off with this weird stuff that he says. He was just known for saying stuff that, you know, stirred the pot, that ticked people off. Then there were folks that wanted to kill him from time to time because of the weird stuff that Jesus said. And I, and I got to I got to think that Jesus, you know, weirdness had to make some of his personal relationships awkward. Right? That Jesus might just say stuff that's weird to you personally and it just awkward, you know, what how do I deal with that? I mean, I can kind of see that. At least I think I kind of see it in the scripture. Uh, from one of his first personal interactions or maybe his very first interaction with Simon, right? I mean, you, you know the story. Andrew, Simon's brother, had been one of the original disciples of John the Baptist and was following John the Baptist. John was all about preparing the way for the Lord. And Andrew had been following him until one day John's like, that's the guy, That's the guy I've been telling you about. This guy right here, he's the one who is the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And so Andrew is one of the guys that that went and spent the day with Jesus to kind of sit there and assess, listen to Jesus, and is this really the, the guy? And sure enough, Andrew becomes convinced that Jesus is the guy, that he's the Messiah, Man, all of Israel had been so eager for the Messiah to come. They lived for the day that the Messiah would come. The deliverer, the chosen one of God would finally arrive for his people. And so Andrew, very excited about it. You know what he does next. John, uh, the apostle, different John, he tells us what happens next. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah. Messiah means Christ. And then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. 
And that's when it got awkward. Because he brings me, this is my brother Simon, you know, Jesus, I guess. And then here's what happens. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, your name is Simon, the son of John, or Simon bar Jonah. That's probably the way he would have said it then, Simon, son of John. He says, but you will be called Cephas. I know you're used to hearing this pronounced Cephas. That's kind of the English way to pronounce it. But this is actually an Aramaic word. Starts with a K when you transliterate it. It's Cephas is the way it was pronounced. In Greek, it's Petros. Masculine version, feminine version, Petra. In English, it's actually rock or Peter is the name. It means rock. It means rock. It means stone. So it's got to be awkward, right? It's got to be awkward because, because Simon doesn't know Jesus. He doesn't really know anything about Jesus. He just knows his crazy religious brother Andrew has been chasing after John the Baptist. And John said, this is the guy. This is the Messiah. And so Simon just walks up cold to Jesus. And the first thing Jesus says to him is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to call you Stony." And Simon's got to be going, okay, it's Simon, but all right, you know, and it's got to be weird. It's got to be awkward. And Simon doesn't follow Jesus at this point. It's not till a little later, we don't know how much time later, when Jesus does the amazing miracle, you know, in Simon's boat of the big fish catch, that's the day that Simon's convinced, like his brother Andrew already was, and he says, okay, I'm in, and he drops everything, and he follows Jesus. That's later on, but for now, it just has to be weird. Jesus says weird things. That's kind of what he does in his whole ministry. You know, he's always saying weird things, especially when it comes to those Pharisees. He's always saying stuff that he knows is going to tick them off. You know, these are the leaders, the religious people. You're supposed to respect and look up to these guys, and Jesus is trash-talking them all the time and getting into trouble. He's always saying weird things, and he talks about a lot of things, but there's one thing he isn't saying. There's one thing that seems to be the most obvious thing about Jesus that he doesn't touch as a topic. Oh, everybody else does. They're watching Jesus do his teaching with authority, you know, like no one's ever had. They're watching him do healing after healing, miracle after miracle, and everybody's saying the same thing behind his back. They're going around, this guy, this guy must be the Messiah. Could he be the Messiah? Surely this Jesus could be, must be, has to be the Messiah. This is the guy, right? And so everybody's talking about it except for Jesus himself. Maybe it's because there was that one time, that one time in Nazareth where he says the weird thing, kind of, and it really did not result. Well, he went to his hometown, Nazareth. We got to go to Nazareth when we were there. This is it right here on this hill. And um, Jesus is a kind of a popular rabbi, so that he goes to the synagogue. They're like, why don't you teach today? And so he opens up the Isaiah scroll, and he reads this. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. And he rolled up the scroll, 
He handed it back to the attendant, and Jesus sat down. Meanwhile, all the eyes are looking intently at Jesus, okay? Is he going to say it? Is he going to say the thing? He's going to say the thing, right? And here's what he says. He says, the scripture you've just heard has been fulfilled this very day. So he doesn't outright say it, I am the Messiah, but he kind of really alludes to it. He kind of really hints at it. He gets really close to actually saying it. And look what happens. This is, remember, this is Nazareth. It's his hometown. Everybody there has known him from when he was a little kid. They know his parents. They know the trouble he got into when he was, you know, six, that kind of stuff. And when they heard this, it says in Luke 4, when they heard this, the people in the synagogue were furious, jumping up. They mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill or to the cliff on the hill where the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. So maybe he isn't saying it because that almost got him killed one time before. I don't know, but for whatever reason, Jesus isn't saying it and everybody else is. It's this awkward, weird situation where everybody's saying it about him, but no one's saying it to him. Does that make sense? You probably got people like that in your life where everybody knows something about them that they don't seem to know about themselves, and you all talk about it, but you would never say it to that person. So that's kind of what's going on here, and it's really weird and it may even be a little awkward. It's the one thing Jesus isn't saying. He just keeps going on doing the miracles while everybody is saying this about Jesus, that he may in fact be the Messiah. And it's important for us to understand the Jewish mentality about Messiah. You, you know what the Jewish people believe about the Messiah. They believe the same thing we believe about the Messiah. You know, they believe that the entire world was formed, spoken into existence by the creator God, the one true God. They spoke it all into existence and that it reflects his glory. Have you seen the pictures from the new James Webb telescope? All the infrared pictures of the far distant galaxies, it's way even better uh, than the Hubble telescope ever even was. And it's taking these pictures of these distant, distant, distant galaxies because that's how great the glory of God is. And he created all the galaxies and the stars, the planets. He created the mountains and the forests and the oceans and the rivers. He created the sunrise and the sunset, all to just show off how glorious he is. And in the beginning, he also created the apex of all of his creation, and that's us. He made us and put us here so that we would act and speak his glory, so that we would demonstrate his glory above all else, bringing the world into submission like he does. Yeah, it was good, and he was happy. But the Jewish people believed that there was really bad news about his creation, and that is that we ruined it, that we blew it by not glorifying him and instead choosing to glorify who? Ourselves. We thought we could be as good of a God as he could be. We thought that we knew better for ourselves than he does. 
And so we rebelled against him. We became traitorous criminals against a holy king, the creator God. And so we, we walked away. We're out. And we said, we want no part of you. And if God is God, this is bad news. And if God is God, there must be justice. There must be judgment of this wrongful thing that has happened. The rebels must pay. Blood must be shed because the penalty for treason is death. If God is God, he must act. He must give us what we all deserve. This is bad news, right? Wrath of God against you, bad news, bad news. But the Jewish people believed that God chose a people. He chose a man, Abraham. And from that man, he formed a people group that he would mold and make and through which he would bring a deliverer, a savior, the Messiah. That it would be through this group of people that this Messiah would one day come. And they believed that the Messiah, (coughs) excuse me, would do two things. He would do two things. Number one, he would exercise God's judgment upon the rebellious, right? The first thing the Messiah is going to do is going to, he's going to bring God's judgment upon the people who are against him. The second thing he would do is exalt the people of God, exercise God's judgment and exalt the people of God. He would lift them up and say, see, see my people, my people know me and they live for me. You all, the rest of the world, all you rebels should from now on live like my people. So he redeems the world through his people as he exalts them. So two things, enacting or exercising God's judgment and exalting God's people. That's what they believed about the Messiah. And the folks around Jesus were starting to think this might be the guy. It seems like it's the elephant in the room. Everybody knows it, but no one will say it out loud in front of Jesus. He just keeps doing his miracles. So there's people that used to not be able to move, and now they can walk, they can dance. There's people who used to not be able to hear, they can hear. People who used to not be able to see can now see. People who are sick are now healthy. He's just doing miracle after miracle after miracles, blowing everybody away. Everybody loves Jesus. But then something happens. Among all this going on, it seems like there's this day, this inflection point, where Jesus turns the volume of the miracles way the heck up. And now he's not just healing and restoring with individuals. Now, all of a sudden, he's doing these humongous, unbelievable, everybody can see it and has to believe it miracles. Like one day, there was a crowd of people gathered on the hillside listening to him teach, and they were all really hungry. And he shows off by feeding all 5,000 of them with almost nothing. It's a crazy, insane miracle. After that, there's a storm when the disciples and Jesus are in a boat. Storm is blowing and blowing. The disciples terrified, and they're throwing things off the boat. They're, they're panicking. They think they're about to die. They wake Jesus up, who's sleeping through all this, and they're like, hey, you need to wake up because we're going to die. Guess you ought to be awake for that. And Jesus, he, he gets up and he's like, oh, you're worried about that? And he looks up at the clouds and the wind and the rain, the storm, the lightning, the thunder. And he just says, 
he says this. He says, shut up. And it does. It stops and the water becomes still instantly. What? The disciples look at each other and they're like, who is this? Who is this? Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Who is this? Even even the winds obey his command. Later, he feeds 4,000 more people in a similar way to the way he did the 5,000 earlier. And then after that, he actually sends his disciples across uh, the Sea of Galilee on the boat. And then he goes walking out after them. And he walks across the sea. Jesus does these incredible miracles. And Simon got to see all of them. Simon got to see them all. Miracle after miracle after miracle. This rocky, stony dude got to watch them all. And you know, the thing about Simon is he had not been very stony or rocky. He had not been very immovable. Simon wasn't like that at all, even though that's what Jesus always called him. That's not who he was. He had been watching all these things go on, but Simon was impulsive, right? You know this about Simon. He was up and down. He, 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 he kind of was given to his passion of the moment. So he'd blurt stuff out and he'd say stuff. He'd do things that were kind of crazy. You know, one minute he's literally stepping out of the boat because he trusts Jesus. And the next minute he's sinking in the water because he doesn't trust Jesus. Right? One minute he's pulling out his sword and cutting off a soldier's ear to defend Jesus. And just a few minutes later, a few hours later, he's intimidated by like a middle school girl who asked him if he knows Jesus. He's kind of up and down and all over the place. He's not very rock-like. He's kind of Impulsive. He's kind of all over the place. But he's watching all these miracles happen, and the miracles get bigger and bigger and less and less explainable. Why do you think Jesus is doing this? Why is he showing this not rock, rock, all these miracles? See, here's what I think. I think, next blank on your page, I think there's some things Jesus wants to show, not tell. I think there's some things Jesus is just eager to show and not tell tell. Sometimes, sometimes you and I are like Simon the rock, and we got to see it for it to really all come together. How, how many of you guys say that you're visual learners like I am? Visual learners? Yeah, don't, don't always learn really well by reading. Sometimes I got to see it. You, you know what I'm talking about? Is anybody with me? Yes? Okay. Sometimes I just really got to see it for it to all come together in my head. It's why I love YouTube videos. I need to know how to fix my car or uh, build something I don't know how to build. I watch a YouTube video and, you know, they always start out and say, sup, guys, what's on YouTube? You know, hey, don't forget to like and subscribe. Got to talk for 30 minutes about your channel and everything first. And then you finally get to the 30 seconds of the thing I want to watch. And then I, I see the way they do. Oh, got it, got it. I can figure it out. Sometimes I really need Jesus to show me and not necessarily tell me because I'm dense. (laughs) And I wish I could sit here. I wish I had time to tell you about all the times that Jesus has shown himself to be himself in my life. I wish I could tell you about the miracle after miracle after miracle that I've watched. I wish I could tell you about the way that he has providentially or miraculously arranged circumstances in my life to prove that he is who he says he is. 
I, I wish I could tell you, you've probably seen it. Like if I were to ask you this question, I'm gonna ask you right now, just don't answer me out loud, but other than save you, what has God done in your life that only God could do? And I got, I can't really see, but some movement in the back. I'm not sure what's going on. I can't, lights are bright on my face. But here's what I know. Here's what I know. If you're like me, if you're like me, dude, I could start writing out that list. And I don't know that I'd ever get to stop. Because time after time after time, he shows up and he shows off in my life. Sometimes he just wants to show, not tell Sometimes it's through tragedy. Sometimes it's through pain. I'm gonna give you a tiny, tiny little example. I didn't say this in the last service, but David Lynn, are you still in the room? David Lynn, right back there. I, I see movement, so I assume that's you back there. Okay, good. Um, so David Lynn, David and Deborah loved them. They were supposed to go on this encounter of a lifetime to Israel with us. And uh, they were scheduled to go, paid up to go. They went to all the meetings. Uh, I mean, just really getting ready to go. And at the last minute, David got very, very sick. He was in the hospital for days, taking all the nurses off, <laughs> taking them all off. And he, I mean, he really was bad, bad sick. And I kept saying, you know, don't give up on the trip. It's going to be, you're going to get out. It's going to be a miracle. God's going to do what he wants to do. And you're going to go on the Israel trip. Okay. All right. Leave me alone. I'm trying to sleep, you know? Um, and it was the, I think the Thursday before we left, uh, I was, uh, at Tony's country corner kitchen, Tony Sav. I don't know if y'all know him, but he runs a little, little restaurant and Tony had been dying to go, dying to go uh, for, for a year. And I, we had been talking about it. And he I promised my mom I'd go. I, I want to go. But he just he can't work. Business owner has a hard time working it out. The deadline came and went. He missed it. And every time I was in there, he'd be like, when are you going? When are you going? I wish I was going. Wish I was going. I was in that restaurant when David called me. And uh, actually, it was Deborah. And she said, we're, we're out. There's just, there's just no way we're going to be able to go on this trip we will not, I mean, we're just shutting the door. We're not going. And it was a, kind of an emotional hit. And I hung up the phone and I just, I grabbed Tony and I said, Tony, your seat just became available on that airplane and you need to go. And he did. Oh, well, that's not it. That's not it. Hold on. <laughs> it gets better. So Tony Moved by the Holy Spirit, I believe, he, he put his credit card down on the table. I'm like, whoa, 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 you don't pay me. Uh, so we worked it out. He took their seat, and he went on the trip with us. Well, on our way over there, we had a, a stopover. Uh, we were flying Turkish Airlines, and so uh, we were flying with a bunch of people from Turkey. Turkish people are Muslims, and so we're flying with them, uh, all of us flying together, mostly in coach, except for Tony. Tony's better than the rest of us, and he has a lot of Turkish airline sky miles, so he upgrades to first class. Jerk. So we're like, ooh, Tony, first class. Uh, you sit with all the haves, we'll be back here with all the have-nots, you know, you know, whatever. And um, he's like, I don't care. I'm going to stretch out while you guys are all, you know. And so he flew first, and it's, long, it's like a 10-hour long flight. So, of course, if you can upgrade, you upgrade that joker. So, he's sitting up there, and here's what happens. There's a lady, we don't know the story until after we land. There's a lady in coach, 
that we don't know, a Muslim woman, she's pregnant, and she miscarries on the airplane. And she has this terrible, traumatic moment in her life. They actually called out on the speakers, is there a doctor on the plane? No doctor. And to, they don't know what else to do with her, just to try to comfort her, to take care of her. In this moment, they, they move her up to first class where they sit her next to Tony. And Tony looks at her and he sees what's going on and he asks her if he can pray for her in the name of Jesus. She had probably never been asked that question before. She may have never heard a prayer in the name of Jesus, but right there on that airplane, Tony prayed with her in the name of Jesus Christ, and she found comfort and peace. I don't want to say that she turned her life over to Christ. She didn't do that, but he ministered to her in a way that, David, you never would have because you would have been with us, with all the losers. But sometimes God does miracles that you don't understand on the front end, but look what he does on the back end. Who knows if that woman might not have gone back and been like the woman at the well. This guy prayed for me in the name of Jesus, and you don't know the peace and the comfort that came over me. Maybe there's something to that. I don't know what would have happened, but I do know that God worked out a miracle on that airplane. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. So this was an encounter of a lifetime, to be sure, on a lot of different levels. And it was so incredible. You know, you've heard the stories from the other guys the last couple of weeks. And, um, you know, I never dreamed it, but we've had so much positive feedback. And so many people indicate they want to go that we're going to do it again next June. We're going to do another Israel trip in the last half of June next year. And uh, I did not ever dream that we'd do another one. I'm, I thought maybe five years you know, from now, maybe 10 years from now, uh, if I'm still around, you know, who knows. Um, but we had, uh, I threw it out to our VIP meeting last Sunday night. And I said, look, if you're interested, just write down your email and your phone number so we make sure we got you. And not asking you to commit to anything because I don't know, I don't know any details yet. I'll get them together in the next couple of weeks. <laughs> who might go? And we got 40 people that said that they want to go. Um, and so I, 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 doubt, I doubt all 40 will go, but I'll bet 20 will go. And I'd like to invite you to go. I'd like for you to have the chance to have an encounter of a lifetime like we've had. And so we've got a page set up for you, and uh, you can just scan that right now and go there and uh, put your email down. You're not committing to anything at all. We're not putting you on the tour you know, groups uh, list or anything. We're just going to email you the details first. That's all this is. We're going to email you the details first. We're going to give you the first crack at taking the available seats when we go next year in June. It'll probably be almost the exact same dates as this year's was. It'll be the last two weeks in June next year. And I would love for you to be able to go and have an encounter of a lifetime with us uh, next year. So, okay, back to the story. Jesus is showing, not telling, right? He's working hard to show something to these guys. Nobody wants to say who Jesus really might be to his face, so maybe they're not totally sure yet. 
And Jesus is driving the point home by showing them, not telling them. And then all of a sudden, he pushes pause on his ministry. All of a sudden, he's like, come on, guys, let's, let's get out of here. And right in the middle, right in the one and a half year mark of his three-year ministry, he's like, come on, let's, let's go. Let's get out of here. The guys leave the Galilee area, and they travel together about 30 miles north of the Sea of Galilee to a little place called Caesarea Philippi. Uh, in that day, this little area, it, it was an amazing thing. It looked like this in Jesus' day. So when they would have walked up to Caesarea Philippi, this is what they would see. They had this giant rock wall, this huge rock face. It's at the foot of Mount Hermon. It's just this big cliff, uh, and it's one of the biggest cliffs that's in Israel. Uh, and uh, at the foot of this thing, there were temples built by Herod to pagan gods, this one is built to the god Pan. You remember Pan? He's the goat man, right? Half man, half goat, right? I was going to put a picture of him up, but he's an awful, awful, terrible pagan god. He's really bad. He's associated with fertility. And when you look at the famous statues of Pan, they are not fit for church use. And so I did not, don't Google him now. Don't Google him now. Look later, there's, there's, there's him in poses that you don't want to see, but there's also him doing unspeakable things. So I'm just telling you, he's a bad, scary God. We get the word panic from pan, and it's scary, it's bad. So they would worship this scary, awful God in this pagan worship location. Jewish people were not supposed to go there, but everybody else did. This was located right on an international highway, and people would travel, and they would come to this location to offer sacrifices to Pan and to other gods. In fact, look at this one right here. Uh, this temple, not this one, this temple was built right in the front, in the mouth of a cave. You can kind of see the cave behind here. Uh, and it was built there in this cave. There was uh, water flowing in and through the cave then, not now, uh, because there was an earthquake uh, a few years later, and it changed the route of the water flow. And you would go in there uh, in this temple, and you would bring your sacrifice. You would kill your goat sacrifice, and you would throw the goat, <coughs> excuse me, you'd pitch the goat into the water inside the mouth of the cave. If the goat sank, that meant that Pan received your sacrifice. If the goat floated, that meant Pan rejected your sacrifice. And if he rejected your sacrifice, you know what that means. It means you've got to come up with a better sacrifice. So you were required to find a child and kill the child and throw the child in the water. Come on, that's... Scary. It's awful. It's the worst you can imagine. You would throw this child into the, this lake of the dead inside this cave, and it was awful. And that's because I think one thing you can learn from this, and it's the next blank on your page. Look at the video in a second, Carol. Next blank is this. In this world, no sacrifice is ever enough. 
No sacrifice is ever enough. No matter what you worship, it's never enough. I mean, it sounds awful to sacrifice a child in that way, but how many children have been sacrificed to the God of abortion these days? Millions. You know, no matter what God of this world you worship, it's never enough. You always got to give more, give more, give more. You never get to the end. You never get to a, a point where you're fully accepted. If you worship money, when do you have enough money? Never. It's never enough. If you worship status, how do you keep your status? It's never enough. You got to keep earning it. In this world, no sacrifice is ever enough. Caesarea Philippi doesn't look like that anymore, like it did in the picture. Now it looks like this. We had a chance to go there. You've seen some of this footage in the intro video to this message series all this month. And you can see the cave, the big cave that's there, but the temples are now in ruins. There really was a, a bad earthquake, and everything kind of uh, has fallen down and sunken in the ground even. But there's the big cave where the water used to flow. Uh, and the temple once stood, another one over there, and there's niches all on the wall where they've put, uh, they, they would have these niches, these holes in the wall uh, that they carved to put their idols, their evil, evil idols. I got a picture of one here. Yeah. <laughs> That's not an evil idol. <laughs> so we got a chance to go there, and we got a chance to see all of that. And it's here, it's here at this location that Jesus is standing there with his people. Remember what they thought the Messiah was going to do? He was going to exercise God's judgment, and he was going to exalt his people, right? We believe the same thing. Jesus, you and I know, you and I today know, the disciples didn't quite have it figured out yet, but we know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he did exercise God's judgment because Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Lion of God, Jesus, the child of God himself, with no sin of his own, he came and became guilt on our behalf. He came and he took the blame for what you and I are and do took it upon himself, and he went to the cross, and God's judgment came onto Jesus. And he became that once for all sacrifice. He became the sacrifice that is good enough. You and I never have to go and throw goats in water to be accepted by God because Jesus makes us acceptable. He covers us with his blood. His blood was shed so that God's anger could be satisfied. So number one, he already exercised God's judgment. It came on himself on our behalf. And number two, he exalts God's people because he, he exalts them so that they will redeem the world. And it kind of works around the opposite. What he does is he comes in and he lives today to redeem the world through you and me. He put us here to be, as we say it all the time, be his hands and to be his feet. And so he redeems the world through us, and one day we'll be exalted with him because now we are co-heirs to the throne with Christ. Come on, that's good. That's who Jesus is. He's the Messiah. That's what he died for. That's what he lives for. That's the gospel. Yeah, yeah, amen. 
But the disciples didn't have that all figured out yet, and they wouldn't have it all figured out quite for some time. But it's at this location where Jesus asks the two important questions, including the pivotal question for Simon. He gets these guys right here to this spot, and he asks them the question. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And nobody wants to admit it. We know what they've been saying about Jesus, but nobody wants to say it to Jesus, including the disciples. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they him hall. They're like, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah. I don't know. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. You know, nobody wants to come out right and say it out loud. Awkward. So Jesus looks at them and this is where he asks the pivotal question. He says, well, who do you say that I am? And in my mind, there's a moment there's just a second where nobody wants to say it. They're all thinking it, but nobody wants to say it directly to Jesus except for one guy, and it's Simon. And he just blurts it out. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the guy. You're the one we've been waiting for. You are the Messiah. Finally, it's coming together. In my mind, he says it right out. He just lays it right out there. And everybody goes, I can't believe we just said that. You know, everybody clenches their teeth. That's not the only thing clenched. And they're like, what did he just say? And Jesus responds. Look at what Jesus says. I'm going to try to unpack this as best as I can. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, Simon bar Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed it. He goes on. Here's what he This is This right here, so much right here, I, I'm going to try. Okay, here we go. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock, you are Petros, you are Cephas, And on this Petra, this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, everything I've said so far leads up to this. And I'm going to try my best to unpack this very quickly as I can. I'm going to get to the part about Peter and upon this rock. But here's what he says. Upon this rock, I will build my church. Church. He says church there. Uh, At least that's what it says in your Bible, but that's not what he said. I'm going to tell you right now that this is not a translation of what Jesus said. This is a bad misrepresentation. The word church comes from a German word, a later German word, that is a religious word. The word is kirka originally, And kirka means religious edifice or building. So when someone says kirka or church, they're referring to the, you know, this that's all around us, the the building or a basilica or something like that. But that's not the word Jesus used. Jesus wasn't German. (laughs) I know that's a big shock. Jesus used a very different word that actually had a very different meaning. 
Jesus said, upon this rock, I will build my Greek word, ecclesia. I will build my ecclesia. An ecclesia is not a religious word. It's a very common, easily understood, everybody says it, word. And what ecclesia is, is nothing to do with building. When Jesus says, I will build my ecclesia, he's literally saying, I will build my called out gathering of people for a purpose. Ecclesia means gathering of people that have been called out for a reason, usually to fight. Think militia. I've called this group of people out to conduct this military action. I will build my gathering, my ecclesia. He's talking not about I will build my building. He's saying I will build you. Upon this rock, upon the fact that I'm the Messiah, I will build you. You are my called out chosen one. So I will build my gathering. My, that's a very different term, isn't it? I will build my gathering. And he says that not only will I build my gathering, but the gates of hell. He says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Gates of hell, I think this is another um, another instance of not the best translation. I know some of the translations that you have now will say all the powers of hell will not stand against it. I, I think the translators are doing their best to try to convey the meaning that Jesus has, but I'm sorry, I feel like they get it wrong. Who am I? I'm a redneck nobody, but here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. I know that the word Jesus used here that we translate hell, he actually used the word Hades. The gates of Hades will not prevail. And in the Jewish mind, Hades is not the same thing as our mentality of hell. Hell is a place with fire, destruction, pain and misery for eternity where the, the, the sinners and the rebels are judged forever, right? That's kind of what our mentality of hell is. But the mentality of Hades was different. Hades is the realm of the dead. It's just simply the realm of the dead. There's no fire involved in that. Uh, it's not necessarily judgment involved. It's just that that's where the dead go. The dead go to Hades, and that's where you are. It's the realm, the city of the dead. Jesus said the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I think Jesus is telling us two really important things here. I think that number one, he's saying that no matter how scary, no matter how awful, no matter how bad you may perceive uh, the world to be, it will not prevail against it. I don't think he's just coming up with a figure of speech here. Uh, he's not just making up a, a line, gates of Hades, because actually at Caesarea Philippi, where Jesus is standing, the mouth of this cave, where they would throw the goat or the child, this was called the gate of Hades. That's the name of this cave. And he's standing right here saying, even the gates of Hades will not prevail. No matter how scary it gets, no matter how pagan it seems, the gates of Hades will not prevail against my ecclesia. Come on. That's pretty good, but that's not it. It's not only there. This is also important. So I always wondered about this term, gates of Hades will not prevail. Prevail. Can we see prevail? Yeah. So the gates of Hades will not prevail. And I would wonder, how does a gate prevail? How would a gate, a gate is, a gate doesn't go to battle. 
doesn't go to war. I mean, if anything, it's just a defensive tactic to close the gates, you know, when the army is invading your city. And so I didn't understand how gates prevailed, and it wasn't until I started going to Israel that I learned something. You see, I had a misconception of gate. See, I always thought of a city gate like, you know, this. Here's the city wall, and somewhere in the city wall, there's a gate. And you open the gate for people to come and go until the bad guys come, and you close the gate, and everybody stands along the top of the wall and, you know, shoots arrows or drops rocks or pours boiling oil or something, right? So that's what I always thought. That's the way it looked. But that's not what Jesus or the disciples would think about a gate. You see, about 30 years before Jesus, Herod installed a bunch of new city gates in all of the cities. And a Herodian gate doesn't look like this. It looks like this. It's a big box, sort of like an airlock with double sets of doors. On the ground level, you go in this door, through the gate, and then out this door. You see that? It's a very, very different idea. And this is a tall gate, right? It's all the way to the top of the city wall, however tall this is. And so you got the ground level where people can pass through, but just above ground level, just right over your head, there's a section of the gate right across here on this back half called the guard room. And here, there was a floor and a, and a half-built-up wall where soldiers would be stationed. Maybe a dozen soldiers or more inside this gate, and they were ready so that when an invading army or marauders would come to attack the city, you slam the inner door shut, let them come on, and then the gate guards would attack the attacking army. What this tells me that I think Jesus is saying about the gates of hell. Why are you scared of the gates of hell? Because, next mic on your page, you are the invading army. You hear me? You are the invading army. You are charging in to the realm of death, bringing life to everyone in the city. That's who you are designed to be. You're charging the darkness as the army of light. You're not saved to sit and smile and raise your hands every now and then. You're here saved to invade Hades with life. That's who you are, and that's what Jesus is telling us here. So tepid, tepid, weak applause. So Cephas <laughs> took a while I would think if you knew you were a part of the army of light, you'd be happy about it. Uh, maybe we're a lot, a lot more dead than I thought. <laughs> so it took Cephas a little while longer to figure this all out. He said it, but as you know, it still took him a while. But I think it's at this moment at Caesarea Philippi that his light goes on because look who Jesus is talking to. I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And upon this rock, Peter, you're the rock. Simon, you're the rock. You're the Petros. And upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia. Now, there's some people that think that Jesus is appointing a pope here, but I don't think so. I think that Jesus is saying, hey, dude, you figured it out. You see what I'm doing here, and you're the case study, Peter. 
you're the one who is the leading example of what I'm going to do as I build my church. You used to be impulsive. You're all over the place. You're given to passion. You're up and down, but I'm turning you into a rock. That's what the Messiah does. I'm building you into something that will never be the same. That's what Jesus is doing here. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened to Peter. He still had his ups and downs for a while, but read Acts. Read the first 12 chapters of Acts, and you'll see Peter actively doing things like 50 different times. Boy, he's the definition of what the Messiah does in someone's life. It was this guy, Simon Peter, that preached that sermon on the day of Pentecost, and thousands of people came to know Christ. It was this one that went and declared before the rulers who Jesus was. It was this one that was put into prison and miraculously released and continued to lead the church. It was this one that preached another sermon and thousands more people came to Christ. It was this one that God used to heal the beggar right there in the city. It was this one that proclaimed to the Sanhedrin who the Messiah was. It was this one who dictated his story to Mark, who wrote it down for us. And today we have the gospel of Mark, which is really Peter's story. He also wrote first and second Peter. He became strong and stood all the way to the end when he was crucified upside down. And here's what he writes to us today. He writes this to us in first Peter one. He says, as obedient children, do not do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, so also be holy in all your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. He also writes in 1 Peter, he says, you're coming to him. You yourselves are living stones. So the Petros, the Kephas, is telling you, you are Petros yourself. He's doing to you what he's done to me. Peter's passing his legacy on to us. He says, you're like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood and to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. It's not goat sacrifices thrown into water in a cave. Your life is a sacrifice to God through Jesus Christ. And I think the light went on for Peter right here, right here in Caesarea Philippi. I think Peter finally realized right here why Jesus called him Cephas, why he called him Petros, why he called him Peter. I think the light went on for him that he was one way and he had no idea what God was going to do in him and through him. In other words, last blank on your page, Jesus has had it planned all along. He's done that in your life too, hadn't it? I mean, he's come into your life and he's called you and he said, I want you to be mine. And then he says a bunch of weird stuff that's hard to digest, hard to understand, but he's shown you time and time again that he is who he says he is. And today you're nothing like you were. You were impulsive and you were given to your passions and you were all over the place, but now he's turning you into that Petros, that Cephas. He's making you whole. And he's had it planned all along. He knew who you were going to be before you even knew him at all. 
That's what he does in our lives. Has he done that in your life?